True Crime Fix is a podcast with adult themes and graphic descriptions of crime which may not be considered suitable for all ages. Please use your discretion when listening. All research has been conducted using material in the public domain and some opinions may not be that of the author or the host. Please remember that all victims are someone's loved one and all episodes are recorded in the utmost respect of their memory. You're listening to the True Crime Base Podcast with your host, Steve. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to our 23rd case together. Please note that this is the second part of a two-part episode, so please make sure that you have listened to episode 24 first, or you'll get slightly confused. A reminder as always, if you've enjoyed the show so far, then please make sure that you've subscribed on your chosen podcast directory, and all the new episodes will automatically download for you. You can also listen to the new episodes through the website, so go over to www.truecrimefixpodcast.co.uk and all of the episodes are at the base of the home screen. The episodes are also available now on the True Crime Fix channel on YouTube, so please spread the word as far as possible. So when we left the case yesterday, it was Wednesday the 4th of November 1996, and Lee Harvey's partner, Tracy Andrews, had just concluded the press conference appealing for witnesses for the attack on Lee. So without further ado, this is your True Crime Fix. I'm your host Steve, and this is part two of the story of Lee Harvey. On the day after the press conference, Detective Sergeants Mick O'Donnell and Brian Russell who had been designated family liaison officers, went to the Harveys' house to take their statements and update them on the case. Two people had come forward after seeing the press conference and reading the newspapers, providing a major breakthrough. Although they could confirm the fact that they had new leads to the family, the inquiries were still continuing, so they were not able to divulge any further information. In the subsequent days following the attack, they had set up a number of roadblocks along Cooper's Hill, hoping that someone had seen something. Of the 650 cars which had been stopped, 120 of them had been on the road on the night of the murder, and no one recalled a chase like Tracy had described. As per protocol, they wanted to eliminate everyone from the inquiries so Maureen and Ray had given their statements in separate rooms, as well as having their fingerprints taken. The questions were like, Did Lee carry a knife? Was Lee happy? Did Lee have a temper? Maureen informed the police that the only knife that she knew Lee to have was a Swiss Army knife which he had had since the age of 13. The leader of the Boys Brigade group had purchased one with the permission of the parents 
for all of the boys in the troop. As far as she was aware, the knife was in a memorabilia box which Lee had taken to Tracy's house. So what do we know about Tracy? Tracy Marguerite Andrews was born on the 9th of September 1969, so was two years older than Lee. She had attended Bridley Moore High School in Redditch and left with six CSEs. She left with the ambition of becoming a nurse and joined the youth training scheme to look after the elderly. She had met her first serious boyfriend when she was 17 and he was the father of Carla. She had left him on her 22nd birthday. Two years after, Tracy and Carla moved into a council-owned masonette in Alverchurch and she started selling hair and beauty products on a market stall in Birmingham. Proudly declaring that the other market traders would call her the tart with a cart. Maureen Harvey in her book described a number of occasions where Tracy would be proudly openly sexual when talking about herself. As described in the last episode, there was an instant where she grabbed Ray's hands to touch her newly enhanced breasts. There was also a second incident when she was discussing dropping out of the nursing course. She said to Maureen, I couldn't bear to see anyone in pain. It's a shame really, because I look great in a nurse's uniform. As Tracy is not the star of our episode, I'm going to move on from her. Following the statements being taken from the family, the same two police officers headed over to Tracy's mum's house, where Tracy was staying temporarily to ask her a few more questions. When they got there, her mother had mentioned that she was upstairs in her bedroom. DS Russell knocked on the door, and when there was no response, he opened it to find Tracy on the bed unconscious. She had taken an overdose of about 200 pills. She was rushed to Alexandra Hospital in Redditch, where they pumped her stomach. She was now out of the woods, but she had clinically died twice on the journey over. They found a note in her bag which was addressed to her daughter. She said that she was sorry and wanted to be with Lee the police were now keeping watch on her in case she tried it again. Maureen was told about what had happened by the police officers who had been with them a short time earlier and went to the hospital with Ray to see Tracy. Once Tracy had come round and was able to see visitors, Maureen and Ray sat by the side of her bed. Tracy grabbed Maureen's hand and said, I'm really, really sorry for what I've done. When they left the room, Ray said to his wife, She is as guilty as hell, Maureen. That's as close to a confession as you're ever going to get. Tracy ended up staying in hospital for two days, recovering from her bid to take her own life. Ray's suspicion was confirmed on Saturday the 7th of December, when DS Johnson called and said that he had some information for them which he could not tell them over the phone. 
20 minutes later, he arrived at the Harvey's house. I don't know whether you're aware of this, the detective said, taking a seat in the living room. But Tracy is being discharged from hospital this morning. And as I speak, he said, checking his watch, she has been arrested in connection with Lee's murder. I cannot tell you too much, but the witnesses who responded to our appeal are a couple who saw Lee's car travelling along the lane which led to Cooper's Hill, and Tracy is now our main suspect. For the next 11 days, Tracy Andrews remained under police guard at the Reeside Hospital Psychiatric Facility on the outskirts of Birmingham. A couple of days later, Andrews' ex-partner, Andy Tilson, made contact with the Harveys about testifying at the trial. He described about a time when she had attempted to attack him with a bread knife after a row. She really lost it with me. If I hadn't managed to get the knife off of her, I'm not sure I'd have been here. Nothing I did for Tracy was ever good enough. She smothered me with her insecurity and just wouldn't leave it if she felt ignored. At 10pm on the 19th of December 1996, Tracy Andrews was charged with Lee's murder at Redditch Police Station. Her solicitor, Tim Robinson, made a statement on Andrews' behalf outside which was televised. I quote, My client continues to vehemently deny any involvement with the murder of her boyfriend. I don't believe the police are looking for anyone else in connection with the death and that is the case they are putting to Miss Andrews. On the 20th of December 1996, Andrews appeared before Redditch Magistrates Court. Tim Robinson requested that reporting restrictions were lifted on the case because he wanted the public to hear all of the details and evidence of that night. He stated the reason for this request was to help someone identify what he called the real killers. The magistrates initially agreed for bail to be granted so that Andrews could spend Christmas with her young daughter. Further submissions were made from the prosecution to the magistrate, saying that while she was on bail, she could attempt suicide again. Eventually, the magistrates agreed that Andrews should be remanded until trial at Eastwood Park Women's Prison in the village of Falfield in South Gloucestershire. On the 23rd of December, however, Tim Robinson appealed the decision and the case was heard at Oxford Crown Court. Despite the CPS's objections, the bail was granted as long as she stayed with her mother Irene and stepfather Alan. On the 7th of February 1997, Lee Harvey was laid to rest. His funeral took place at St Nicholas Church in Kings Norton. The church had always had happy memories for the family, as Michelle and her husband Steve had got married there. It was, on the other hand, in a sense of twisted irony, also going to be the church that Lee planned to marry Tracy in, in June of 1997.
Now everyone was congregated to say goodbye to him. More than 350 people turned up to pay their respects to Lee. His mates from West Midlands Travel turned up to the church driving the number 35 single-decker bus, the one that he drove so proudly. It had a large photograph of Lee on the front. His daughter Danielle's wreath was the most prominent, with Dad spelt out in white roses. The message inside saying, To Dad, have a wonderful day in heaven. Love you and miss you. The family had decided that the funeral would be too difficult for her, so her grandfather on Anita's side took her to the zoo instead whilst Anita attended the service. Six of his closest friends were pallbearers and the coffin was covered in the blue and white of his beloved Birmingham City Football Club. The Reverend Eve Pitts conducted the ceremony, stating to the congregation, I pray and trust that what we are thinking about in our grief must not overwhelm us. We must recall the years of happiness Lee brought to so many. On Wednesday the 19th of February 1997, Tim Robinson presented a photo fit of a man who he claimed was called Jez, who Andrews claimed to be one of the killers. According to the lawyer, Jez had been driving the Ford Sierra and had also been behind another road rage attack on a company chairman. He claimed he had a signed witness statement to this fact. A dangerous psychopathic knifeman is still at large in the Birmingham area, Tim Robinson said dramatically. The picture coincidentally was familiar. The photo fit, which had been comprised with a London firm, had a striking resemblance to Detective Sergeant Brian French, the first officer who Tracy Andrews had seen on the night of the murder. When the press contacted West Mercia Police for a comment on the potential new evidence, the police declined to comment. Just a word of note here, my dear listeners. It appeared as if the Harvey family was now being taunted by Andrews and her solicitor. To the extent that on the 27th of March, Tim Robinson applied to Worcester Crown Court for a variation of her bail conditions. She wanted to go on holiday with her family to Bournemouth on the south coast of England. This hurt the Harvey family in two ways. Firstly, they had had to spend the family's life savings on burying Lee and couldn't afford a holiday. But secondly, the person who was accused of killing their son was granted leave to go away. The British tabloids had a field day when they found out there were reports of how she had sexual relations with a married man at the caravan park that she had attended. Tracy Andrews' trial began in Court 9 at Birmingham Crown Court on Wednesday the 1st of July 1997. Tracy Andrews was being represented 
by Ronald Thwaites QC and David Crickman QC was prosecuted. Mr Justice Buckley was the presiding judge. Andrews pled not guilty. David Crickman QC said Lee and Andrews had gone through a string of violent bust-ups in the two and a half years that they'd been together. This is a pair who sometimes lived together and sometimes lived apart, depending on how much they were arguing. He continued, When the turbulence of their relationship became too much, Lee would move out and go back to his parents. He then described a row which started at Andrew's flat six weeks before Lee's death, when she told the police he'd thrown a VHS cassette at her. She was upset and telephone equipment had been broken. She complained that this had been done in the course of an argument earlier in that evening. There was also a television on the floor which she said Lee had dropped the night before. He also raised another issue in a nightclub. The argument had been so fierce that other clubbers had gathered to watch them. Later that same night, In the early hours, they were seen arguing in a lay-by by two police officers in a patrol car. A week after, the police were again called to Andrew's flat after a neighbour heard them rowing and Lee packing up his stuff. The evidence showed they both participated in the fights, but the crucial significance of this testimony was to underline the turbulent and explosive nature of their relationship. Mr Crigman said even on the day of Lee's death, the neighbour living above Andrew's flat had heard an argument. He made sure to put emphasis on even the neighbour's hard-of-hearing mother-in-law had heard raised voices. He said that they had made up and gone to the Marlbrook pub and had a drink and then driven home. It is the prosecution's case that during that journey, their volatile relationship again exploded and a fierce, violent argument broke out. Although other drinkers in the Marlborough pub had noticed an air of unease between them, the argument would have started in the car. It led to the car being stopped and both of them getting out. When they were out of the car, Andrews launched the most vicious attack on Lee using a penknife blade from an imitation Swiss army knife. The ferocity of the attack on her boyfriend and the area where the attack was concentrated, namely the neck, would have quickly rendered Lee defenceless. Both the carotid artery and the jugular vein were severed. It would have led to the immediate and massive spurting of blood from the neck. No doubt he would have tried to move away from her, but he wouldn't have been able to move very far before collapsing to the ground and dying. It is likely that the attack continued after he had collapsed and abated only after her anger had subsided. After the attack, she was to claim that the death had been caused by the occupants of another car during a driving dispute. The evidence showed unequivocally 
there was never another car. There was never some mystery murdering motorist. It was her. At the time, she was seen as a potential witness, but with hindsight, her activities at the hospital where she was taken to be treated for her facial injuries, which were inflicted by Lee in their final and fatal confrontation, may prove an explanation of how she disposed of the knife. She was allowed to go to the toilet alone when she got to the hospital, and a long time passed without her re-emerging. A nursing sister became worried and knocked on the door. Andrews said that she was alright and left the bathroom. During the three hours that she spent in hospital, she returned to the toilet several times. The plastic bin liner inside the lavatory's waste bin was emptied, unchecked, hours later, and its contents passed into the rubbish disposal system. Mr Quigman QC said that although the knife had not been found, DNA tests on the inside of Andrew's boot revealed a two and a half inch by one inch blood stain. Blood, he said, which was a mixture of Lee's and Andrew's. There is extremely strong evidence to support the view that Andrew's tucked the knife inside her boot, he said. Mr Krigman said that the witness Richard Main, who had been visiting Keeper's Cottage, a house which was on the lane at the point where Andrews had described the attack had taken place, said he had left just after 10.45pm and heard a woman calling for help and requesting an ambulance. Was she tending to the body of a man? No, she wasn't. Was she running to the house for help? No, she didn't do that either. She was standing by the driver's door with her back to the car and she was covered in blood. The defendant made no mention of Lee being stabbed by a pursuing motorist and Mr Main didn't hear another car speeding away, Mr Krigman continued. He added the bloodstains found at the scene did not match Andrew's version of events. Lee was attacked and bleeding in a completely different location from where Andrew's claimed he was attacked. Parts of the knife, a pair of blood-stained tweezers and a spring from a pair of scissors were discovered near Lee's body they had broken off from the murder weapon due to the ferocity of the attack. The hand which held the knife would also have been cut. Andrews's little finger on the right hand was found to be lacerated, which was examined by the doctor. The prosecutor also described how a clump of almost a hundred hairs from Andrews's head, mostly still with the roots attached, had been found on the sleeve of her leather jacket. Three other strands of her hair had been found in Lee's hand. There was also blood found on the back seat of Lee's car, which was inconsistent with the account that Andrews had given to the police. Blood on her orange jumper suggested it was splashed on rather than from cuddling Lee.
This was the first time that the Harvey family was hearing the police's theory on the case. Everything was starting to make more sense now. The next day, the court heard evidence from two different people who were in Baker's nightclub in Birmingham on the night that Andrews bit Lee's neck and punched him. Stephen Gerling, who was one of Lee's best mates, who had accompanied him that evening, and barmaid Victoria Silcock, said there had been a heated argument between Andrews and Lee after Andrews had turned up at the club. Tracy was shouting at him because she was angry he had come to the club. I saw her punch him twice in the cheek. The punches were hard enough to make him flinch, but he did not retaliate. Then she bit him on the left side of the neck and scratched his chin. Lee was taken to the kitchen as the bite was bleeding and needed attention, testified Miss Silcock. Three police officers gave evidence regarding the fights that they had witnessed between Andrews and Lee. PC Ian Henderson said that he'd seen them scuffling outside a pub on Broad Street in Birmingham and that Lee appeared to be trying to calm Andrews down as she tried to hit him. The other officer had been forced to separate them and had sent Andrews home in a taxi. PC Grant Moss and PC David Hind both described occasions where they had been called out to resolve numerous violent arguments at the home of Andrews in Alverchurch. Tracy was always in a worked up state and was quite aggressive towards Lee, PC Hind said. There was a lot of verbal exchanges between them, but when we split them up to talk to them separately, there was constant interruptions from Andrews as she was trying to get back into the room where Lee was sitting. Even as Lee was trying to leave the flat, Andrews was still aggressive towards him and shouting at him. The next day, the 3rd of July, Extracts were taken from a 40-minute video that was filmed by the police. The court heard for the first time from a little girl who lived at Keeper's Cottage who had been in bed on the night of Lee's murder when she heard the row outside. The video showed nine-year-old Stephanie Duncan, who was cuddling her teddy bear, say she had heard two people arguing, an angry man, another person with a softer voice. I know the man was not very happy, she said. He sounded quite fierce to the other person. I woke up because I could hear the noise and the curtains were lit up and I could hear some people were talking outside. It sounded as if they were arguing though. I did not hear what they said. Keeper's Cottage was owned by Stephanie's mum, ex-CID officer Susan Duncan, who had been a detective constable for West Midlands Police before leaving the force to work as a defence solicitor. She told the jury that she had suspected Andrews had killed Lee after speaking to her that night. As Richard Main had left the cottage, 
an automatic security light had come on and he saw Andrews bending over Lee in the road outside. Caught like a rabbit in the headlights, Andrews had only started screaming for help once she realised she had been spotted. Susan Duncan had said that she'd come outside with her mobile phone and torch when Mr Main told her to call for an ambulance. It was very dark in the lane, but I could see a man laid in the road near to a parked car, she said. A blonde woman was standing behind the car. She was distressed and crying. The man wasn't moving and I couldn't hear him making any sounds. There was blood everywhere. Miss Duncan said she would have definitely heard the sound of a car speeding away if there had been one. She continued, Tracy Andrews had told me that she had been in the Marlborough pub with her boyfriend and had an argument with some other men. She said she had told him not to get out of the car, but he did. The next thing Andrews said was I put my hand to my face and there was blood everywhere. Critically, Miss Duncan then said that Andrews claimed to remember nothing about the other vehicle or the appearance of the man Lee had argued with. Later, when the police were talking to her in my kitchen, she said it was a black Sierra, that it was the passenger who had attacked Lee, and she was able to give the police a description. After she had left my house, I began to suspect her. Simon Baker and his girlfriend, Elaine Carruthers, who were both accountants, gave evidence the following day. Andrews had said that she and Lee had missed their turning whilst being chased and had to do a reversing manoeuvre in order to get back onto their route home. Mr Baker said that he'd seen them travelling in the opposite direction and had seen Lee reversing, but Simon Baker and his girlfriend Elaine drove approximately five miles along the same route that Andrews had said she and Lee had taken and both of them said that they had seen no other cars. Certainly not a dark Sierra in hot pursuit. I say that Miss Andrews' story is completely and utterly untrue. I would have definitely noticed another car. From the moment that I saw the Ford Escort, there was definitely no sign of another car behind unless it was a distance of five miles behind. Mr. Baker testified. Police driving expert Brian Seaborn told the court that overtaking was impossible at the spot where Andrews had claimed that the Sierra had got past. The combined width of the Escort and the Sierra was five inches wider than the lane. The driver being overtaken would have had to slow or stop to allow a second car to pass. Joanne Mitchell, a nursing sister at the Alexandra Hospital, described how Tracy had used the toilet containing a sink and a rubbish bin six times in three hours. Within five minutes of her arrival at the hospital, Andrews had spent between five and ten minutes in there. I knocked on the door and had asked her if she was alright. 
I was worried she may have collapsed. When she came out, I noticed she had tried to clean herself up. By the time Andrews was discharged from Alexandra Hospital at 2.36am, Sister Mitchell had said that she had visited the toilet a further three times, either using the excuse she had been drinking at the pub or was suffering from shock. Mr Krigman said Andrews had thrown the knife in the toilet bin, however by the time the police had suspected her, the bin had been emptied. Audrey May, a domestic supervisor at Alexandra Hospital, said that a cleaner would have removed the clinical waste bag between 7 and 8am later that morning when Andrews had been discharged. It was taken without examination to a holding bay and later that same day to the hospital incinerators. Dr Whitwell was next on the stand to give the post-mortem results. She said that two of the wounds in Lee's neck had penetrated through the skull. Dr Whitwell said that although it was not possible to know which one of the stab wounds had killed Lee, one had cut his carotid artery, two had hit the jugular vein and one in the chest had gone through his breastbone. All of these wounds were significant. Ronald Thwaites QC attempted to make Andrew's defence one about being a victim of prolonged domestic abuse, but there was too much evidence to the contrary. On Wednesday the 16th of July 1997, Tracy Andrews took to the stand. To the surprise of everyone in the courtroom, during a discussion of Andrews' medical evidence following the abortion, Maureen had muttered slightly too loudly, lying bitch at which point Andrews flew into a rage pointing at Lee's mother and screaming I want her out of here I'm not going to put up with this whilst I'm giving evidence the jury had seen how she had gone from being a quiet victim to exploding out of nowhere in anger but had she shown her true colours After the four-week-long trial, the jury of nine men and three women retired to deliberate. A side note, the trial came to a conclusion on Tuesday the 29th of July and Lee and Tracy Andrews' wedding had been scheduled for the following Saturday. After five hours, the jury had reached a unanimous verdict. Tracy Andrews was guilty of the murder of Lee Harvey. Before Judge Buckley could pass sentence, Mr Thwaites QC stood up to offer mitigation. The court may wish to believe this killing was a result of a spontaneous outburst of passion mixed with other powerful feelings which she converted into deadly actions. Lee Harvey has lost his life the life of this woman is in ruins. She has a daughter of just seven. If Miss Andrews could turn back the clock, she would love to do so. Mr Justice Buckley then began sentencing. The jury has found you guilty on very strong evidence of murder. 
Only you know precisely what went on that night, but we have all seen the awful consequences. Certainly, it has been a tragedy for all concerned, and I feel deeply for the families on both sides. There is only one sentence prescribed under law, and that is life. The police asked the Harvey family not to say anything outside of the court, as they had arranged a press conference at Steelhouse Lane Police Station in Birmingham City Centre. They informed them that Andrews had kicked off following the sentencing in the court cell, and a police doctor had been called to sedate her. Tim Robinson, Andrew's lawyer, gave a statement to the waiting media. We're very surprised by the verdict. Miss Andrews is devastated by it, as are her family. I've seen my client, and she is conducting herself with great personal dignity, as she has done so throughout the case but she finds it hard to believe that she is in this position. There will be an appeal, but the grounds have not yet been decided. Miss Andrews has been convicted of murder, an offence which she vehemently denies, and which is largely based on circumstantial evidence. On the 6th of October 1998, Tracy Andrews's appeal was heard at the High Court in central London. It was presided over by Lord Justice Roth, Mr Justice Laws and Mr Justice Butterfield. The appeal lasted five hours. Ronald Thwaites QC said that the press coverage had resulted in Andrews not getting a fair trial. The media had portrayed her as an aggressive woman who devoured men a female terrorist, a firebrand, a knife woman. He admitted that many of the stories were a result of the defence team's decision to ask for the reporting restrictions to be lifted to help her case. Although he said that none of the stories had been in contempt of court, he said that the trial judge had seriously underestimated the risks of prejudicing the jurors with the name being synonymous with unmitigated wickedness. Mr Quigman QC denied that she had received an unfair trial, pointing out that the defence team had gone out of their way to tout the coverage in an attempt to make their client appear to be the victim. On the 14th of October 1997, Tracy Andrews lost her appeal and the sentence of life with a minimum tariff of 14 years, stood. Again, Andrews did not react well to the decision and was not at the judgment stage of the hearing as again she had had to be sedated. So what has happened in the years since? Two years and five months after the conviction, Tracy Andrews contacted the News of the World newspaper with a confession. I quote from the article by Paul Lewis and Douglas White. I took the knife. I lost all control. I saw his eyes go to the back of his head. I felt the wetness on my hands. I picked up the knife and went mad. All I recall is seeing red. In her description of the night, 
she confessed that the row had started about her ex-boyfriend Andy Tilson, the father of her daughter. They were on their way home after the night at the pub. I told Lee to stop the car. I would rather walk home. He did this, I got out. Lee drove off. He then reversed back and shouted at me to get in the car. I was being stubborn and wouldn't get back in. He swore at me and drove off again. As I reached the house where the incident happened, Keeper's Cottage I think is the name, Lee was waiting in the car again, shouting at me to get in. I told him it was over, I wanted my keys to the flat. Lots of nasty, nasty things were said. He wouldn't give me the keys to my flat. I told him I would call the police. I was crying. He came straight up to me and grabbed me by my hair. He said, See if Andy wants you with a fucked up face. He had a knife and I was scared. With that, I need him. He fell down and pulled me down too. Then he grabbed me and pulled me. We fell over to the grass verge opposite the car. He hit me. I fell back. I got up and tried to hit him back. We were shouting at each other all the time. He punched me again. I fell. I saw the knife on the floor, picked it up, and when he went for me again, I just reacted with the knife. I must have stabbed him. Then he stood still and shouted, You fucking bitch. Then hit me so hard, I fell again. I got up halfway, and all I can remember seeing is red. I just went mad. Everything went in slow motion. I was shaking and had lost all control. All the abuse I had suffered and all the nasty things that had been thrown in my face, the way he had openly admitted to hating my relationship with my daughter and the fact that he held a knife to me and was going to either slash my face or stab me had just come to a head. I have never ever in my whole life lost control like I did that night. I was going to be sick. I felt faint. I was so scared, I went back over to Lee and tried talking, shaking him. I could hear him breathing in a bad way. I saw his eyes go to the back of his head. I could smell this awful smell and felt the wetness on my hand. I went over to the car, holding on to the car door. I knew he was in a very bad way. I was on adrenaline and was trying to think straight. I knew I had to end my own life. How could I live with myself? I knew that the police would take me away. I was so scared, and there was my boyfriend, who I loved, laying in the road because of the stupid fight that had got out of hand. My whole life had ended. I think, deep down, I knew he wasn't alive. I went back over to Lee, he wasn't breathing. I knew I had to make it look as though we had been attacked. 
I got back up and went to the car driver's side. I saw the case for the knife on the seat. I picked it up. I went over to Lee and knelt down, took off my coat and put it over him. I was then hugging him and crying, shaking and thinking, what have I done, what have I done? I heard someone so I shouted for help. A man came over from the house. I told him that we had been attacked. He then went off and came back with a torch. As it shone, I saw how bad Lee's neck was. I felt so sick, so ashamed, so scared, so very, very sorry. I hated myself and just wanted to die. I went numb. I saw something shining on the floor and picked it up. It was a piece of the knife. The man then went to the house to get help and blankets. I put the piece of metal in the case and then backed down my trousers. I was in a state of shock as the ambulance came. I had been on adrenaline and now it was wearing off. All I wanted to do was go to sleep and not wake up, turn back time. I wanted Lee to get up and say he was alright, but I knew nothing was going to happen. I just wanted to die. I was holding on to Lee, telling him I was sorry. Why did he have to push me to do this? I was shaking and I wouldn't leave him. They took me into the house. I made up a story about us being attacked. I went to the hospital. I flushed the knife down the toilet. I was told that Lee had died. I went to the police station. I made the statement. I made it up as I was going along trying to remember what I had told the police beforehand. I wasn't in the right frame of mind. Why didn't I just tell the truth? I don't know, scared of what would happen to me. I couldn't let my family, Lee's family, know what I had done. I hated myself so much. I still do. I did the press conference. I wanted to die before doing that, but I hadn't had the chance. I waited until the early morning and went to my flat. I got every tablet I could find. At my mother's house, I got all of her tablets. I wrote some notes as best I could for my family and my daughter. I told my mum a little later I was going for a lie down. I took all of the tablets along with the ones that the doctor had given me. It was a serious attempt to end my life. I was watched 24 hours a day in hospital and the police came to interview me. I just couldn't bring myself to tell the truth. I was petrified and felt so alone. All through questioning, I kept the story that I had told in my first interview. I nearly did say what happened and asked to speak to my solicitor, but I just couldn't bring myself to let it out. I knew I had to, but I couldn't. Then, at home, on bail, I tried again to take an overdose, this time hoping that something would happen. My family, Lee's family, were going through a nightmare. 
How could I be the one to say, this is what happened? Lee was either going to slash my face or stab me, but I got the knife and it was me who killed him. Please God, tell me, how do you ever come to terms with something like this? I know at the time I was ill. I was scared. I've been riddled with guilt over so many things. I made such a terrible mistake which I feel was forced upon me to do. I was in a no-win situation. I flipped and what happened next I will have to live with for the rest of my life. As so Lee's family, my family, most of all my daughter and Lee's daughter. They've each lost a parent even if they are in a different context. I tried to take my own life because I just couldn't accept what I had done. I still feel that way at times. I have to think about the pain that I have put my family through. If I give in, they have suffered enough. I have been a stranger to myself for so long. I only hope I can find myself again. Maybe if I face my fears, I will begin to find myself. I know I have a very long road ahead of me. I know I have to go through so much before I can gain release. I know I have to be punished for what I have done. I do feel I should have been convicted of manslaughter. I should have told the truth in the first place and used it as my defence. However, I know that the main people who could come forward to help me were Lee's friends. I know people will never speak ill of the dead. They would never have helped me in my case. I needed their evidence, but I knew I would not be able to get it. Lee was a Jekyll and Hyde character. I'm not saying I was perfect in the relationship. I did have my moods at times but everything was so exaggerated about me at the trial. My mother told me that Lee wasn't right for me due to his immaturity and jealousy. They say love is blind, and it is. So that was Tracy Andrews' confession. I usually try to avoid opinions on this podcast, but I could not help but notice again how even the confession was all about her. If that was the way that the murder really happened, telling it like that would have presented a greater chance of a self-defence or manslaughter charge. I find it hard to believe her remorse, considering she admitted to planning her lies from the moment that Lee was killed. Andrews was released from prison in July 2011 after serving 14 years of a life sentence. She changed her name to Jenna Stevens and was moved to an unknown location. She dyed her blonde hair black. She's been back in the news when she married bouncer Phil Goldsworthy in Cornwall on the 25th of August 2017. I'm going to end this episode this week with information about two people who could have been forgotten about in this story and that is Lee's daughter Danielle and Tracy's daughter Carla. Both were so young when this happened 
but as close as sisters. In 2011, the two girls, who were now 20, reconnected through Facebook as they were both pregnant. Although they said they were taking it slowly and they hoped that they would get back to how they were as children. If you want to know more about this case, I would advise that you read Pure Evil by Maureen Harvey. It's available on Amazon and I picked it up for less than a fiver. It is heartbreaking to hear, firsthand, how this tragedy has ripped a family apart. I use this book as the main source material today, but there's so much more to go into about the aftermath of this case. Please give it a read. Lee would have been 48 this year, and already a grandfather himself. So that's it for this week. Please remember if you've enjoyed the show or want to know more, follow us on Twitter at True Crime Fix Pod. That's at True Crime Fix Pod on Twitter. The podcast also has a Facebook page, True Crime Fix Podcast, but there's also a fan page, True Crime Fix Discussion. I'm thoroughly enjoying interacting with everyone on there and this is where I post the majority of the information on the week's cases. Please also remember to visit the website www.truecrimefixpodcast.co.uk That's www.truecrimefixpodcast.co.uk Also a reminder that this podcast is now on Patreon. So please visit www.patreon.com forward slash true crime fix podcast. That's www.patreon.com forward slash true crime fix podcast. I also have an Instagram account, so search true crime fix. Also, if you have any suggestions or feedback for the show, please contact me at true crime fix podcast at gmail.com that's true crime fix podcast at gmail.com until next time stay safe look after each other and live life to the fullest because you never know who or what might be coming around the next corner take care everyone